0: We were actually hoping to take a couple of days out over New Year and because I knew I was here on a Sunday morning we were going to go down to Galton just just a little further down the road and uh, stay there just very quietly in in, in a a little pub um, where we could just be on our own. And uh, she's not been able to do that. had so to cancel that out, and she's at home at the moment, and uh, so on and so forth. But she's fine. There are people who are a lot worse off than we are, and we're just thankful to God for His goodness. All this. So that's the story, and uh, I hope your Christmas was less, say, uh, um, up and down than ours. But uh, here we are anyway. It's great. Let me just read that verse again from 1 Samuel chapter 7 that Colin referred to a few minutes ago. The reason was a bit vague when I emailed him and said, well, I could, it will be in this area, is because really I've been asked to do a couple of things this morning. One of them is to do a sort of uh, New Year uh, message. This is why I've called, uh, no, can we put it up, Kev, just to start with? Are we ready for it yet? 2014 here, today. whether we like it or not. This is a funny Sunday because we can't wish one another a happy New Year yet. But it's just there. It's just beyond midnight, and we're almost there. Are you ready for it? How do Christians prepare for a new year? That's one thing we've got to have a quick look at this morning. Not by turning into French dogs, I know, but still. Uh, And the other thing I've got to do this morning is just do a bit of a curtain ritter for what we're going to be doing over this year. Once again, this church has been unwise enough to trust me with a large part of the teaching program. And that being the case, what are we going to talk about? I've been talking to the leaders about that over the last few weeks. We've come up with a plan, and uh, I'll just unveil it a little bit for you this morning. The first of those purposes... Thinking about the new year, how do we prepare for it? It's why I went back to this verse in 1 Samuel 7. What it says is, is this. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. Two places. that are not very far apart, but that's another story. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. Ebenezer means the stone of help. Thus far has the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again. What's going on behind this? Well, there are 20 years of failure is the short answer to that. 20 years before, the Israelites had been doing badly. They turned away from God. They were being oppressed by the enemies around, and they just were not succeeding. They had a big battle against the Philistines, and they said, well, let's, let's take the ark the presence of God out of Shiloh, the place where it is, take it onto the battlefield and see if it lacked as some sort of magic charm, spread influence all over the place, and, and the would be just just uh, cowed by the whole thing, and God will supernaturally somehow uh, win the battle for us. It was absolute desperation. They were treating God as if it was some sort of magic uh, charm that could be uh, manipulated by them. And certainly the Philistines felt like that, because when they took the ark out onto the battlefield, the Philistines were like, oh, a God has come onto the battlefield. This has never happened before. And they were terrified. But as it was, the Israelites were so weak, and God didn't show up. The ark was actually captured and taken off by the Philistines. God did not stand up for his people in the battle. But he started standing up for himself shortly afterwards. Because the Philistines found that when they took the ark home and put it in the temple of their God, all sorts of nasty things started happening in their community. There were plagues, there were all sorts of things. Idols were broken in the temple overnight when there was nobody in there. All sorts of things. And in the end, they just took the ark and shoved it back over the border. Here you are. You, you, You deal with it. We don't want this anymore. And so God's power was obviously unchanged. But the people of Israel were far away from him. And they didn't know quite how to get back together again. they weren't willing to get back together again with God. What's happened 20 years down the line is they've become fed with being weak and powerless and battered and just going nowhere. And as a result, Samuel's been able to call the whole of Israel together at this place called Mizpah, which is a place where big decisions were taken in the Bible. But that's another story again. And at Mizpah, the whole of Israel gets together And Samuel says, look, if you're serious, but you've got to be serious, then we'll go back to God and we'll say we're sorry, we'll repent, we'll reaffirm the covenant, and it'll all start again. And Israel said, yep, that's what we want. The Philistines, meantime, see all the Israelites gathered together in one place and think, whoa, we're for the high jump. These people have somehow got a new courage. They're going to form an army. They're going to invade us. Okay, get your revenge in first. And so they formed an army and came to attack Mizpah. And the people were absolutely devastated. What are we going to do now? And they said to Samuel, as Colin mentioned, don't stop praying for us. What will you do? And God said, well, and Samuel said, well, let's pray. Because the hope you need comes from God. They won this fantastic victory. Thanks to the weather conditions, as Colin said. And the end result of that was that Samuel said, we must not forget this. So he sets up this stone, the stone of help. And he says, what it means is, hitherto the Lord has helped us. And that, it seems to me, was a a tremendous reminder to them of how to face the future. And there there are three things to it. Just that short phrase, thus far the Lord has helped us. There are three things that come out of it that I think tell us how we ought to be approaching the new year. The thing is it says thus far. We've been on a journey. And the Hebrew word, just like the English word, talks about how far you've come. How something's happened in the past that's brought to you the point. And it's important to remember that. And New Year is a great time for looking back at what God's been doing with you over the last 12 months or over the course of your life so far and getting some, some of the bigger picture. We don't see it all, obviously. Things happen that we don't understand all the time. But through it all, you can see the grace of God. You can see the way in which God is leading you forward from one experience to another and working out his plan for your life. Look back and see what God has done so far. We've been on a journey. But it's not just looking back, it's looking forward too. Because it's thus far. (laughs) We're on a journey with him, but the journey isn't over yet. Samuel was not saying, oh, let's set up a memorial, but God helped us in the past. Now we're okay, we're settled, we don't need him any longer, but let's have a memorial to say thank you to God for all he's done to get us to this point. No, it was supposed to be an encouragement because we're still going. Thus far he's helped us, and he's going to help us in the future, and this stone is the guarantee of that. Never forget what God has done in the past because that should give you faith and confidence for the future. The journey's not over yet. You're going to need more of God's grace. You're going to need more of his help. So not only looking back, but looking forward is the way to approach New Year as well. Look at what's happening. We are facing a more complicated, difficult and uncertain world that we have faced for years and years. And all over the place you can see gloomy forecasts going on. I think it's the Sunday Times this morning, in Desperation has put out what it calls the Good News magazine. A whole issue that's got nothing negative in it, just the nice stories. But you can't blot out what's really going on. The environmental crisis, the horror of Gaza, the horror of Ukraine. The, the, the possibility of the world situation tipping over into another nuclear war. All kinds of different things are, are on the horizon that are not looking too good for a change. Now, as we look forward into all of that, we need to look at our own lives as well and say, well, where are the stresses going to come? Where are the difficulties going to be? What can we see that's going to be tough for us as individuals, as a family, as a church? And Where do we need the grace of God in all of this? looking forward into the future and that's not all yet we look back we look forward also crucially we look up thus far has the lord helped us we need his help because we can't make it on our own we're not sufficient for all of these things and that word helped here is 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 a word that you find throughout the bible it's for somebody standing alongside offering resources that you've not got Doing something that transformed the situation just because they are there and you're not doing it on your own. And so thus far has the Lord helped us, says Samuel, as a reminder that there's grace available to us wherever we look. It's just there if we look up as well as back and forward. I grew up, partly teenage years anyway, in an area in Scotland called the Hillfoots because it's a valley that runs along the front of the Ochil Hills. And unlike many mountain ranges, the Ochil Hills in Scotland are very neatly organised in a straight line. And you've got a, one road that runs through the bottom of the hill, and I used to start at one end of it at my home in, in Sochi, and go to Dollar Academy every morning to go to school. And you know, sometimes I just did not notice the hills. They're there. Every time I go back to the Hill Foots now, you you, you see the Yochel Hills above you, and you think, wow, what an incredible place to live with these hills. Why did I not appreciate it more? And sometimes I was just so worried about my French homework or having fallen out with my friends or something like that, that I just I'd not even notice the surroundings I was in. Psalm 121 that Colin read to us says, I'm going to lift my eyes to the hills and ask the question, where does my help come from? And so those mountains of Israel that the pilgrims were passing on their way into the festivals in Jerusalem became the source of a song because of a reminder that up there, away from us, there is a power, there is a might, there is a grandeur which shapes our lives. And there's a source of help and encouragement and support that we'd never get from anywhere else. So we need to look back, we need to look forward, and we need to look up. That's what Ebenezer, it seems to me, was all about. That word help is an interesting one. As I say, it's the, the key Bible word for help. And uh, I was going to read this one if, if we hadn't had Psalm 121. But let me just mention it in passing. Psalm 54 is one of those little seven-verb psalms that's shaped like a chiasm. Do you remember what one of those is? It's a, it's a mirror image. The first half balances the second half. And, of course, the point of the whole psalm comes right in the middle. Not at the end of it, but right in the middle. And if you look at Psalm 54, you find that verse 1 talks about the fact that God can save his people. You look to the end of it, in verse 7, Oh, that's about God can save his people as well. Then you look at the second verse, and that's about the psalmist praying. The way into God's help is to pray. You look at the second last verse, and that's about I pray as well. Then you go in a little bit further, and you find verses 3 and 5, about enemies and the way that they will attack and try to pull you down and you see how the whole thing is balanced like that around the central point and the central point is verse four which uses our word help the same hebrew word and what it says is this surely god is my help the lord is the one who sustains me and that's the way it is for us in life isn't it in the midst of god's promises and my prayers and the enemy's attacks, there's this assurance at the heart of Christian living that surely God is my help and the Lord will give me a sustenance that nobody else can. He'll keep me going with resources that nobody else can provide. So that leaves us with two questions really, doesn't it? I look at a new year coming up. Two questions. First of all, what is our life for? Where does God want us to go? And the second question, how do we know? (laughs) How does he tell us? And that's basically what we want to do with the teaching in the church this year. We want to answer the first of those two questions in the morning, a little bit anyway, explore it, and the second one in the evenings. You may just have seen this website before, and you may have noticed that there's a vision statement on the website. You can get it as a bookmark as well, there are probably some at the back. And the the vision statement for Great Parks Chapel is, our vision is to see people, well, four things. We want to see people saved. We want to see people discipled. We want to see them encouraged. And we want to see them equipped to serve Christ. Now, that's not just a nice form of words. That's been put together as a statement of where we are going as a church. Um, some mission statements are pretty pretty uh, vague. Take Togo, for example. Don't be evil. Well, big deal. You know That doesn't tell you anything, does it? We're a little bit more specific than that because we believe that what God wants to do in Christians' lives, and that includes our lives as well, is these four things. So whatever God wants to do with you through this next year, those four things are going to be included. So what we're going to do in the mornings over this year is unpack the vision statement. Look at those four things and say, well, what do they actually mean in our lives? First of all, people need to be saved. They need to be rescued from a life without God and brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ that changes everything. We're going to spend three weeks just talking about that. Three weeks doesn't sound long, but when you start panning out how much time we've got for all these things, you can see just how much we're trying to cram into a year. And the first of those weeks, we're going to talk about the miracle. What happens when somebody does become a Christian? This uh, guy in the, 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 the very small picture up there is a fellow called Robert Robinson. And he was born in 1735, September 1735, in a place called Swaffham in Norfolk. I used to run a training centre in Swatham many years ago. Nothing much happened in Swatham. Nothing still happens there, but Robert Robinson was born there. Same, same week, actually, as the first British Prime Minister moved into Downing. No connection whatsoever. But anyhow, um, that was when he was born. And for the first 20 years of his life, he didn't really have a brilliant time. His father was a Scotsman. That is not why he didn't have a brilliant time. Okay, But his father was a Scotsman who married an English girl who was far higher in society than he was. And the family, disapproved of the marriage, wouldn't work together with them. He then got into debt and left the family, unscrupulous Scotsman, and uh, he died shortly after in Winchester, which is as far as he could get away from them. And uh, that left the family in absolute penury. His grandfather, uh, who should have been responsible for him, owned him completely. He was the youngest of six in the family, which didn't help me. And he was left ten shillings and sixpence, which for those who don't understand real money, is 52 and a half p. And that was all he got uh, as as an inheritance from his granddad. He was just cast off completely. Now he'd been a very bright scholar at school up to this point. But um, he had to give that up and go to London and became an apprentice to a hairdresser. Learned how to shave old men's beards. And he did not like that at all. And the whole of his life was up and down. His mother had to take in lodgers and sew and do all sorts of things that she wasn't brought up for. And life was precarious and difficult. And it stayed that way. And through his teenage years, he more or less thought, life is a joke, it's just haphazard, it's luck. You just have to get by on your own resources as far as you possibly can. And then when he was 17, he went to hear George Whitfield, one of the greatest preachers of his day, Preaching in a Methodist chapel. And he said before he went that he thought he pitied these poor, deluded Methodist people. And he came away shaken, envying them their happiness. They had a happiness, and some of them were in pretty difficult circumstances as well, but a happiness that he just did not have. And so he went away, struck by Whitfield's message, amazed by the Methodists. It took him another three years to get there, but by the time he was 20, he'd become a Christian. And he became the most incredible servant of God you could imagine. Mm-hmm. Tremendous preacher. Wonderful Christian. His life had been turned upside down by a miracle. It just, just, just took that whole haphazard uh, story of, of, of loss and frustration he'd endured right through his teenage years and turned it into something that was sensible, that made sense. I'll come back to him in a moment. That's why I'm using him as an example. But uh, the miracle is where it all starts, isn't it? When you're taken from darkness to light from despondency and futility to purpose for the future, from hopelessness to hope. That's what being saved is all about, and we'll unpack that in one session. But we've also got to talk about the experience of being saved as well, because salvation isn't just something that happens to you, and that's nice, and then you leave it there. It's something that goes on through your life, and you are being saved. The New Testament uses three three tenses. It talks about having been saved. It talks about being saved. It says that one of these days you will be saved. Confusing. Well, the second bit of it, being saved, is what's supposed to be happening right now. When you gradually, bit by bit, are transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And as you live from day to day, walking along through life, hand in hand with him, you change. You might not notice it yourself, but other people start to see signs of the grace of God appearing in your life, and they start to get a little glimpse of Jesus the way that you relate to them, the things that you do, the decisions you make. And being changed in that way was something that this guy took very seriously. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian of the Second World War. He wrote about the fact that many Christians in his day seemed to accept what he called cheap grace. They wanted to be forgiven by God, but they didn't want to pay anything for it. And you can't really because Jesus has paid for it all. But what you can do is give your life back, to, back to, to, for him to use in his service. And you'll learn how to do that as you go on through the experience of being saved. Handing over more and more of your life to his control. And Bonhoeffer, well, we can't tell his story this morning. The clock's ticking already. But um, uh, he basically gave his life at the end of the war because he refused cheap grace. He refused to take the easy way out. He stayed in his country. He confronted Nazism. And when he was led out to be at Flossenburg concentration camp just a few weeks before the war came to an end, he said, this is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. And that takes us on to the third thing. You will be saved one of these days. You'll be removed from everything in this world that still oppresses us. You'll be taken away from the old sinful nature you had. You'll be perfected when you, 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 your eyes lock with those of Jesus and the hope that lies before us. This guy, you might recognize this picture. He's somebody who's briefly fascinated the nation this week, hasn't he? Because why would a man in Sheffield go for a walk just after Christmas, stop to help a woman, who was injured lying on the street in the midst of a family feud in which people were being hurt and all kinds of things were going on. But he did. He knelt down to help her. And as we now know, somebody drove a car at him and killed him outright. And Chris Marriott's good Samaritan act of selflessness has just fascinated people because most people don't act like that. But Chris Marriott was a Christian, a member of City Church in Sheffield. Somebody whose track record was just doing whatever he could to make people's lives better. And although he's gone, it's a story of triumph, not just disaster. People have quoted in the newspapers again and again the statements of the church and the family about this is a terrible thing, an awful thing, we're just adjusting, we need people to pray for us, all that sort of thing. What they have not tended to quote <laughs> is the full version of the family statement, which is this. Chris was also a man of faith who wanted others to also experience the joy he had found trusting in Jesus. We take comfort in these most difficult of times, in our belief that he's with his Lord and Saviour, while we mourn his loss. A hope that can take you right through life, and fit of the other side without ever letting you down, that is being saved. Okay, so we want to talk a bit about that, but we also want to see people discipled. Now, you might remember we talked about this a little bit last year. We were looking at the life of Jesus, and we talked in one session about what is a disciple. And we said that the idea of being a disciple is something that came from the exile in Babylon, when the people of Israel were left out of their own country and were put in a, a foreign environment where there were no synagogues, there were no places where you could, you could meet, uh, uh, there was no temple you could go to. The temple was 900 miles away, and it was a burnt-out wreck. So how did you preserve the knowledge of God? How did you teach the Bible to the next generation? And the whole idea of taking people who would be disciples started from there. But Jesus transformed it. Because anybody could be his disciple if they they had the right qualifications. You could be a man, you could be a woman. You could be rich, you could be poor. It all came down to just following Jesus. And for a disciple, we said in that session, There are three things that are important, featuring all three areas of your personality. First of all, you need to learn to learn from your teacher. Second, you need to learn to live, to live out what you're being taught in practical action in your life, whatever that costs. And third, your emotions are involved, but learn to love the group of people who are on that pathway of discipleship with you. And those are still the three points of discipleship. And uh, the New Testament uses lots of other words about them. Believer, that's the mind word. Saint, that's the will word. Somebody who's different, who's living a different lifestyle, marching to the beat of a different drummer, that kind of stuff. And the emotions word. Brothers and sisters who love one another. And so we'll explore what that means. But I want to take it on a little bit from what we said that morning and talk to you about what are the marks of discipleship. How do you know if you're doing this discipleship bit right? Second, what's maturity? You'll never be perfect until you get to heaven. But there is a level of maturity that you can reach when you you can think, yep, I'm on the right road. What does that look like? The New Testament talks about that in several different places. We'll have a look at that too. And then third, and importantly, how do you make disciples? Because although we're all disciples of Jesus, we can help one another to be better disciples. What is involved in disciple-making? So we'll look at that as well then we'll move on we're getting into the summer now I think and uh, over the summer into the autumn and to talk about in- being encouraged we're supposed to be together as a Christian you're not on a solo flight to heaven right we're all together uh Michael Grayson said sometimes people talk about the Christian life that way as if it's a solo flight to heaven with only a little bit of formation flying on Sundays in between <laughs> not that way is it we're part of one another we belong together and encouraging one another. Well, how do we think about that? How are we going to handle that? The, I was looking at a website last night that said this. One Greek word is sprinkled throughout the New Testament like salt on popcorn. If you don't like salt on your popcorn, ignore that comment. But it's American, okay? And uh, what this woman is saying is there is one word that you find again and again through the New Testament. And it's the word alone in Greek. And that means to one another. For one another. And if you look at the 100 references there are to that word, you'll find they give us a tremendous list of all the things we're supposed to do for one another. This is just 36 of them. There are a few more. We could spend the rest of our lives on this series, let's be So we're just going to pick out some of those, but it's worth sometimes just having a look at the lot. What does the New Testament say we are supposed to do for one another? How do we get encouragement for one another? What are the things we should avoid that we don't do to one another? All of that sort of stuff. So we'll look at that as well. And that just takes us on to the final one, doesn't it? Which is, we want to see people equipped to serve. We talked about this, not last year, but um, back in, ooh, I think it was September. Uh, 2022 that's 50 years ago and uh, you know you deserve a gold star if you remember this one but uh, we did talk about romans chapter 12 and the fact that god gives gifts to us you have spiritual gifts you're meaning oh not me no i've got a gift for making coffee or flower arranging but that's not that's not the important thing that god's given you god's gifts are supposed to bless and develop and encourage other people so that particular thing he's given to you and uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 says, God works in different ways, but it's the same God who does the work in all of us. We're all different. We all got different abilities. Um, a spiritual gift is given to each of us, says 1 Corinthians 12, so that we can help one another. Nobody here who is a Christian is ungifted. You have a gift, and probably a few. Uh, people used to talk about a complex of gifts, and that's a good phrase, I think, because you've probably got different abilities that you wouldn't have if you didn't belong to God. He's given them to you, and he's given them to you for a purpose. There are four lists, as we said, in the New Testament, Romans 20, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4. We'll have a look at that and look at how you can be equipped by your gifts. So that's how we'll deal with the first question. Where does God want us to go? He wants us to be saved, first of all. Then he wants us to be discipled so it's an ongoing experience in our lives. And the purpose of that discipling is so that we can encourage one another and become equipped to serve God's purposes in the world. And as we get a, a clearer handle on that, that might just help us to know where we are as Christians and how much God still has to do in our lives. But, remember, there's a second uh, question, and uh, I'll only talk briefly about the one. But uh, how do we know what God has told us? How do we know that what we've got in the Bible is really what God wants. And so in the evenings, we're going to do something which is going to be quite uh, ambitious, I think. We're going to have a look at prophecy in the Bible and look at how God has used prophets down through the century to bring his word to us. And how when his, 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 his uh, revelation completes itself in the New Testament, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, that's what's called a hen diad. It means the apostles who were prophets. In other words, the apostles who have given us everything that Jesus began to do and to teach, who've given us the whole revelation of what Jesus was all about and where we stand in they were prophets. And they stood at the end of a long prophetic tradition through which God made his word, bit by bit, available to people down through the centuries. So, what were the prophets anyway? What were they all about? Many people think of a prophet as somebody who's got a crystal ball. I can see that uh, you're going to meet a tall, dark, handsome stranger, and you'll cross a sea, and then you'll get married, and that will be 58 Please, It's not like that. The prophets do say quite a bit about the future. But it's been calculated that something like 1% of the words of the prophet, prophets in the Bible, relate to what's going to happen to us in the future. (laughs) 99% of it isn't about the future as we see it now. Some of it certainly is about what's future then, and they're talking about what's going to happen in Israel and so on. But that's not a big part of a prophet's job. A prophet is there simply to talk on behalf of God. There's a really interesting bit. Just... Before Moses goes to talk to Pharaoh, the let my people go story. And he's been given Aaron by God to go with him. And God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 7, You will be as a god to Pharaoh, and Aaron will be your prophet. What that means is, Aaron's going to do the talking. (laughs) You said to me that you're not very confident with words. Okay, I'm going to give you the messages. But Aaron is going to deliver them. And so a prophet is somebody who delivers the words of somebody else. The word nabi, which is the word used for prophets in Hebrew, simply means, well, it's got to do with the word to call. And people argue about, does it mean a, a prophet is somebody who's called to speak for God? Or is he somebody who calls on God and gets a message from him? We don't really know yet. Uh, theologians argue about that. But the important thing is, there is a link between God God. And the prophet, which means that the prophet is able to say what God thinks. People called by God to represent him and speak his words. And that's what a prophet does. What does a prophet talk about in the Old Testament? Well, I think there are three things. First of all, the prophets clarify who God is and how he thinks. So they give us an understanding of God that we'd never have until we're hearing from God himself. Second, they're calling people back to what I've called the great agreement, the covenant that God made with his people. I will be your God, you will be my people. And God was always faithful throughout the centuries to what the covenant uh, said he must do. The people, well, they were unfaithful again and again and again. And so constantly you find that one job of the prophets, perhaps the most important job, is just to call people back to what they already knew to where they ought to be, to do what Samuel was doing at Mizpah and say, look, if you're really serious, let's go back to God and sort it out. The third thing that prophets do are gradually revealing God's plans for the future, gradually focusing in and sharper and sharper focus on what God is going to do with the world in the long run. So that we're going to have a look at, and uh, we're going to uh, talk about uh, the place of a prophet. You see, prophets were very, very important in Israel. It wasn't that the nations around didn't have prophets. They did, the Babylonians, the Sumerians, the Philistines, all sorts of people. Everybody had prophets who claimed to speak from God. But there's a difference. Uh, In the way that prophets functioned in uh, Israelite society. The Oxford uh, Encyclopedia uh, of of, uh, Research Encyclopedia of Religion says this God was bound to the nation by a covenant containing law that had to be obeyed. And so, because of that, prophets in Israel were much preoccupied with indicting and judging kings, priests, other prophets, and the entire people for covenant disobedience also in Israel, the lawgiver was God, not the king. The king wasn't the top dog in the country. Over everything, human that went on, there was God. And so the prophet who spoke for God had a big role in Israel that he just didn't have in the, the, the nations round about. And this is the encyclopedia. It's online. You can look it out for yourself. And uh, it's this. If you look at Assyria, big nation to the north, of much bigger than Israel was. Assyrian oracles from prophets are largely oracles of peace and well-being, typically giving assurance to the king about matters of succession and success in defeating enemies. How about as cutting as you know, the horoscope in the Daily Mirror or something like that? If prophets admonish the king, if they dare to complain to the king about something, it is a mild rebuke about the king ignoring a prior oracle or not having provided food at the temple. Hebrew prophets rarely, if ever, merely warn or give polite advice They speak the divine word with authority. By the prophet's word, people become ill or healed. They live or they die. Whole nations rise or fall. Behind this powerful word stands Yahweh, God. The Hebrew prophet is simply Yahweh's messenger. Now, I'm going to cut through this one. You'll see this one again one of these days. But um, there are four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, called major, not necessarily because they're more important, but because they're more long-winded. They just wrote a lot of stuff. And with those four major prophets, you've also got the twelve, the minor prophets. And uh, we'll see how you can divide those up to uh, uh, understand just exactly how they fit in and how many K's there are in Habakkuk and things like that. And we'll be looking throughout the year at four questions. Basically, first, the twelve minor prophets. They're a good place to start because they didn't write very much. Obadiah, for instance, is just one chapter. So we'll have a look at those guys to start with and say, well, how do they uh, function? What do they have to say that's still important for us? Do we still really need Nahum or Zephaniah? I can't remember. Any time that somebody said to me, uh, um, uh, we're going to preach tonight about Nahum or Zephaniah. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, I'd be asked by by Christchurch Woodbury to preach about Joel. They were doing a four-week series on Joel. I've never heard of anybody else doing that. I um, don't know how it went on. I'm not sure my week was the most brilliant one of the lot. But um, th- we need to look at these 12 minor prophecies. What is the function of them? Second, we're going go to go right to the other end and look at prophecy in the New Testament. Is there still such a thing today? Is there a gift of prophecy that people have got? If so, how is it different from prophecy in the Old Testament? We'll talk about that. Then third, we're going to look at the big three, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Why do they have so much to say? Why are the books so long? And we'll have no chance to do much more than just a a sketch, an outline of what's in the book. But it might help just to provide some sort of scheme through it that will help you in your own reading. You might say, oh, big three, what are you talking about? You've forgotten Daniel, haven't you? Well, no, because Daniel's in a completely different style from the other prophets. And it's the same style that you find in Revelation right at the end of the Bible. So the final thing will be to look at the toughest books of all, Daniel and Revelation. Do they make any sense? What are those visions all about? If you read the the Jewish Bible, you'll find that Daniel is not seen as a prophet primarily. Oh, he's honored. He's seen as one of the wisest persons ever to have lived. But he's not seen as a prophet. And they would say there are only three great prophets. Well, I think Daniel was a prophet, but a different kind of prophet. And so we'll end up, after we've had that easy run in, (laughs) with the really tough stuff at the end. So that's where we're going over the next year. What does God want us to be? And how does he tell us? And I hope that over the experience of 12 months working at that together, we've gained a better handle on what God has got for our lives, for our church, and in fact for his church down through the generations. And it will make 2024, if we're still here at the end of it, a really meaningful year for us. Let's go back though at the, to where we were. We said there are three things you've got to do at the start of a new year. Look back, look forward, look up. And this is where this guy came to mind, Robert Robinson. Because after he became a Christian, life changed for him immensely. And he wrote a lot in his day. He was a very, very good scholar, an incredibly intellectual guy. I think that was one of the things that impressed him about George Royale's preaching, that Whitfield was obviously somebody who had read books, understood things, and he wasn't just a brainless preacher. And Robinson thought, I want to be like that. And so he wrote loads and loads and loads. And in his own day, he was very highly respected as an author. But really, there's only one thing of his that's still important today. And that's a hymn which is sung an awful lot in America. And it's become more popular thanks to American uh, uh, singers and musicians in this country too. And it's a hymn called, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And he wrote it as a young guy in his 20s just to talk about the change that being a Christian had brought to him. In verse 2, he talks about looking back and looking forward. He says this, Here I raise my Ebenezer, the stone of help. Hither by thy help I am come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. I'm looking back at your mercy in the past. I'm looking forward to the future, and I hope safely to arrive at home. And then he talks about looking up to what made it all happen. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. And Robinson said, this is why I'm safe. This is why I can look back with gratitude, look forward with hope. It's because I'm looking up to somebody who can meet my every need. May we do that over this next year. Let's just pray for us before Colin comes back. So, Heavenly Father, thank you that we can look back and see the trace of your mercy running through the complexities and the difficulties and the hardships of lives that we often don't understand. Thank you that we can look forward and find in you all the grace we need for all of the things that are going to challenge us and test us and shape us and stretch us in the next 12 months. And thank you that we can look up where the grace is that we need help us this year to walk with you through every day of the year oh walk with Jesus wouldst thou know how fast how deep his love can flow walk thou with him that way is light all other pathways end in night walk thou with him that way is blessed All other pathways, and that way is rest. All other pathways end unblessed. Master, a great desire have we to walk life's troubled paths with thee. Come to us now. Talk to us. Stay. And, oh, walk with us day by day. And, Lord, what we pray for 2024 we pray not just for ourselves, but for everyone here who belongs to you. And we pray not just for one day, for one experience, but for every waking second of this 12-month term. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, be even more real to us in 2024 than they were in 2023. Amen.